Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I look at it like this. It's like planning a party. You want to plan carefully so that when the day comes, you can relax and enjoy the party. So if I've spent that time mixing and time spent mixing is time spent painting. After I've spent that time mixing, I can just relax and enjoy the fun. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. This week, I'm talking with oil painter Sarah Sedwick. This is part one of two. In part one, you'll discover how pre-mixing frees you up to make looser paintings. You'll learn how to paint those shadows and explore different types of palettes, plus a whole lot more. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 22 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it with a small monthly donation. Learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. All right, here we go. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. How did you get started in art? Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I have been painting and working in what I call my current incarnation since 2008, so 12 years now, going on 13. But I oil painted for the first time when I was 10, and you know I had already been drawing since I could hold a pencil, but that first time I smelled that oil paint, it was love at first sniff, as they say. Yeah, I just have kind of been really obsessed with oil painting ever since. Was there a point when you decided that you really wanted to get good, and, and what did that sort of look like for you? Well, I do remember having to make the decision to go to art school. So I, you know, you're finishing high school. It's a really tough time for all people always making that decision about what path to take. And I really consciously remember that moment when I decided, no, I'm not going to go the conventional like humanities college route. I'm going to go to a dedicated art school. And I really had the overwhelming feeling at that point that it was now or never. You know, I could give it my all now or could kind of try to piece it together throughout the rest of my life. But I really strongly felt that I only had this one chance to really give it a full shot. Now, I don't know if I was right about that. I was 17, you know, I, I knew nothing really in the grand scheme of things. But even though I floundered around a lot after art school and had trouble launching my art career or figuring out, you know, the direction I wanted to go in, a lot of trouble for a lot of years, I never regretted my decision to go to art school and I'm even more grateful for it today. What did that struggle look like for you? How did you find the path that you're on now and the work you're doing now? Thanks for that question. I really like talking about this. I mean, it's not super comfortable for me, but it is actually like my mission in life to help people get back into painting who've gotten away from it. Because after I graduated art school, I really did not know what to do. And I had graduated with a very good art education, but no real direction and some unhelpful ideas like that the traditional brick and mortar gallery system was the only way to go. Like if a painting was going to be worth anything to anyone, it had to be 
big and it had to be, you know, figurative and maybe like multiple nude figures and a biblical theme and just all these ideas that were very daunting and intimidating to me. I didn't have access to a studio where I could work large. I just, I just didn't know how to get started. And um, I didn't want to move directly on to grad school to solve that problem for myself. So... I kind of sputtered out and I started just working and doing life stuff. I got married. I moved out to Oregon. Years passed and I actually got to a point where I thought, oh, well, maybe that's over. Maybe I'm not going to paint. You know, I would sporadically try, but I could never get up any momentum. It was really sad for me. And then what happened was in 2007, eight-ish, I discovered daily painting. So daily painting, if you haven't heard of it, is a movement of artists that were blogging. And it got started about 15 years ago or something. Dwayne Kaiser is recognized as the, the father of daily painting. But artists like Carol Marine and Julian Marrowsmith are also, you know, early, early adopters and famous daily painters. And so I discovered this. And the idea that a painting could just be small... And it didn't have to be a super huge investment of time and materials, and it didn't have to be a grand subject. It could just be something I saw on my kitchen counter that morning. It totally freed me, and I started painting every day, and I started a blog, and I started an Etsy shop, and I started selling small paintings on eBay, probably for you know $25 or something, but they were really pretty mediocre when I came back after not painting for uh, nearly seven years. So I very quickly got really really excited about daily painting. And after a couple of years, I started going back to figurative art sessions. I started having shows and, you know, little shows locally. The first gallery I was involved in was more of a craft gallery. And they gave me a little wall space. And I mean, it was high quality stuff. It was a very sweet place. And I just really started grassroots locally, teaching at my local art supply store, teaching at my local art center for almost no money, just to see if I liked it. And it turned out that I loved it. So, you know, I kind of moved on from really traditional daily painting after a few years, maybe three years, four years or so. And I started working a little bit bigger, which for me is like eight by eight, 10 by 10. These days I'm real comfortable working 12 by 12. And I even go up to 24 inches on a side of a canvas once in a while. But every year I seem to kind of reach a new size plateau. Anyway, I'm getting off the track, but that's really how I got from there to here, from this kind of really stuck post-art school land you know, I don't have a bad thing to say about Micah, Maryland Institute College of Art. That's the school that I went to in Baltimore. I don't have a bad thing to say about them. And that's what's so beautiful about the art world. You know, it's so diverse in terms of how we all piece it together and what our careers look like. They're just this puzzle. And what I'm doing today really didn't exist 20 years ago when I was in art school. The internet didn't exist <laughs> practically what it did, but I didn't know how to use it when I was in college. And I mean, I didn't even have a cell phone until a year or two after I got out of art school. And now I could run my whole business on my cell phone. It's amazing how much has changed. So it's a different world now, you know, and my career is an animal that could not have existed back then. So how could they have possibly prepared me for it? I do want to say, though, that as a painting teacher, the fundamental skills that I learned in art school apply today. And that's a lot of what I'm passing along. So I meet these artists who say, oh, my art school experience was worthless. I learned nothing. I'm self-taught practically. And that's not my story. I know that goes on out there, but that's not my story. I still answer student questions to this day, everything from why these palette colors and not those to, you know, what brushes to use, how to lay out your palette. The answer is because someone told me to do it that way in painting 101 in 1997, and I never stopped. And the other big thing that I picked up from art school that I'm using every day when I'm teaching is critiquing. 
There was a ton of critiquing going on at MICA, and that is a huge part of what I'm doing on a daily basis now. In some way, that's a natural segue to talking about materials. So what do you paint with? I paint with oils, and I often call myself a one-trick pony because I really don't do anything else. I draw with graphite a lot. I like to draw with ballpoint pens, too, and Sharpies sometimes, but in the painting studio, it's all oils all the time. And what is it that you like about oils that maybe another medium wouldn't give you? Well, I did already mention the smell, I think. (laughs) And, you know, it's not as smelly as it used to be. But uh, my favorite brand is M. Graham. I use Gamblin, too, and I will give them both a shout out because they're both Oregon companies and they're both solid and I use both their products, but M. Graham is my favorite and they make their oil paint with walnut oil, which is not really the standard. You know, most companies are using linseed oil and it doesn't smell really different, but I like it. I have to say I like it and I'm very smell sensitive. I I don't like to use mediums with alkyd. They kind of bug me. I really don't like liquid very much. I don't like the smell. So that makes a big difference, but that's not really why oils, I guess, you know, the plasticky nature of acrylics and the fast drying time, I always just felt like I was racing to catch up as it was drying out from underneath me. And in my oil painting these days, I seem to be having the opposite problem where it's never, ever drying. (laughs) I have a fan on a painting currently upstairs right now. It's been on there for two days. I'm just like, the customer wants this, you know, it's like, come on. I've been known to put paintings in the oven before and just lightly toast them when I've had a show deadline. So when you start to smell the stretcher bars roasting, it's time to take them out. That's a real thing. Um, don't don't try that at home. But uh, it's just it's oil paint is so rich and it's so versatile and it does stay wet longer and so it lets me keep the same palette working for days and days and days, which is great because I'll mix up like a special palette and then I'll do a series with that unique palette and especially because I store my palettes in the freezer, they stay good and I can keep using them. It's just acrylics that feeling of painting with plastic it, it drives me crazy. And watercolor is the hardest painting medium in the world seconded probably only by gouache except with gouache you do have opaque white the thing is i get a lot of students coming to me with uh, acrylic and with watercolor backgrounds and i tell them you know congratulations you're on the easy side of the street now you've made it you found us and the intimidation factor around oils i get it with acrylics and watercolors all you need is some water and then it comes from the sink and it's free and when you're done you can just put it back in the sink and so the really only difference with oils is we need something instead of water to thin the paint to clean the brushes but then it gets more complicated you you know you have mediums and solvents and what's the difference and why do I need all this stuff well when you're just starting you really don't need all that stuff and if toxicity is your concern there's a lot of information out there about the solvent free studio that's not my practice but that's totally available to people who shy away from oils because of the toxicity factor. But one of my main things is this doesn't have to be complicated. It can be simplified, the materials especially. Then what, I guess, solvent and medium do you use? I use Gamsol by Gamblin. And a terpenoid's okay too, but I don't use it. And mediums, so solvent is the water. Mediums are like adding a little bit extra of what the paint is already made of, oil or whatever to change the consistency of the paint without thinning it and making it runny. So it actually helps wet paint stick to other wet paint, which is really important to me because I'm an alla prima painter, which means alla prima is an Italian word for all at once. That may not be an exact translation, but that's my understanding. And it means you start and finish a painting in one sitting or at least multiple consecutive days while the paint is still wet. 
So it's really important for me to have a way to get wet paint to layer onto wet paint and stick. And mediums are one way to do that. The ones I like and use are Solvent Free Gel by Gamblin. I would eat this stuff if I could, and I'd, I'd love to buy stock in it. I'd go through a lot of it. And I also use Straight Walnut Oil by M. Graham because the paint is made with walnut oil. So you're just making it a little paintier when you add a few drops of that to the paint. Consistency is really a thing with oil painters, and everyone's got their preference, right? Oil paint ranges in consistency from like toothpaste to mayonnaise. And M. Graham is more of a mayonnaise. I like it soft. <laughs> Use a palette knife for mixing, but not for painting. What's the difference between mixing with a palette knife and mixing with a brush? Yes, I do a lot of palette knife mixing. And that is something that kind of makes me different from some other painters. Sometimes I'll put paint on the canvas with a palette knife, but it's really just more of a transport system. I don't usually end up leaving the marks that the palette knife makes. It's just like if I have to cover a big area with paint, I'll, I'll put some of it up there with the palette knife. I do also test like little swabs of it on the canvas as I'm mixing sometimes to see how it looks because we know that paint doesn't always look the same on the palette as it does on the canvas. So testing it is good as you go. Now, I do kind of separate oil painters into brush mixers and palette knife mixers. I don't think we're going to have a civil war between the two camps. Everybody does a little bit of both. But I really like to spend a good chunk of time mixing, pre-mixing custom colors for my subject before I launch in. Now, this is separate from when I paint with a limited palette of three colors in white which is a big way that I teach with a super limited palette, three primaries in white. There's a lot of mixing that happens to get that palette ready to go even before you start custom mixing for your subject. Could you walk us through your process? My process is I do an underpainting or imprimatura with one color that I mix and Gamsol first. And then my second step is I'll stop and I'll mix colors for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half for a big painting I'll mix. And that's called a set palette, right? So I'm making these custom colors for my subject that usually looks like something for the light side and the shadow side of every major color family. So let's say I've got a lemon on a blue plate with a pink napkin, which is the last thing I painted. I would mix lemon in the light, lemon in the shadow. I would mix blue plate realistically, probably in light, medium, and maybe very light, and then shadow. So a few colors for each family, and on and on and on. I look at it like this. It's like planning a party. You want to plan carefully so that when the day comes, you can relax and enjoy the party. So if I've spent that time mixing, and time spent mixing is time spent painting. After I've spent that time mixing, I can just relax and enjoy the fun. And I am using my paintbrush as I'm painting on the canvas to alter those piles. I'm not just painting by number once I've got my set palette. I like to have almost every brushstroke be a little bit different. So I'm altering those piles. But it's super helpful for me to have those because we know we have to go back sometimes. You know, you, you paint an area and then you paint maybe what's next to it, the negative space, and then you kind of mess that up a little bit. And that's how you create rich edges, beautiful edges, right? So you need to go back and forth. You need to work your edges. And so having that color, that starting point to go back to, it makes my life a lot easier. I'm not reinventing the wheel every time I need to go back and fix an area. I feel like if you could just bottle all the times that an artist has thought, like, how did I mix that? I <laughs> yes. More. That's a lot of times. Yes. The big artist problem that we have, the how did I make that conundrum, I, I totally get that. And I struggle with that too. And the way that I got around that problem was simplifying my palette more and more and more. 
So we see these painters with you know, 30 colors around the outside of their palette, and that looks really awesome and fun, right? And it looks super professional, but that's where the how did I make that problem comes in for me, because the more ingredients I have in the recipe, the harder it is for me to remember how I made something. And so simplifying my palette down to just three colors and white, you know exactly what's in every single mixture that you're painting with. And my expanded palette, my big palette, when you see me painting with like the big impressive artist's array, it's probably not more than 12 tubes plus white. Yeah, keep it simple. What's the biggest challenge you see your students facing with color? So one of the biggest questions that I get asked about color Aside from the how do you paint white, how do you paint black, those kinds of things, is the nuts and bolts of color mixing when it comes to shadows. Shadows really throw people for a loop, and how do I mix that shadow color is probably my most common question. There's a couple of ways you can approach it mentally, but the really good news that I have to share is that it doesn't matter what color you paint it. As long as you match the value relationships that you're observing before you in your subject, you can paint it any color you want. You're totally off the hook. Color gets all the credit, value does all the work. So squint, you don't even have to think about color, but you do have to make a decision about how you're gonna approach that. A shadow is basically gray. But if I ask a student what color it looks like to them and they say gray, I say, okay, great. It is gray. All the colors you're seeing in front of you right now are gray to some extent. But that particular gray, if you're calling it gray, that's not a helpful word. It's not helping you mix it. So tell me what kind of gray it is. Is it a brownish gray? Is it a greenish gray? Is it purpley gray? Okay, good. Now you have a starting point to mix that neutral from. So if it looks like a purpley gray, take purple, neutralize it with what? The complement, yellow, start there. And we can look around at the local colors in the scene. So what is the color of the object that's casting the shadow? And what's the color of the thing that the shadow is being cast on? Those are other good places to start diagnosing. In your workshops, you approach colors in a couple of different ways. Could you talk about those two different color approaches and sort of what are the benefits from a learning standpoint of each? The two kinds of workshops that I teach... One involves a really limited palette, and the other one involves a split primary palette, which is still really limited by most artists' standards. So split primary, you got red, yellow, and blue, and you have a warm and a cool version of each of those. So it's two, four, six colors plus white. And then I'm cool with it. I'll let students throw in bonus colors if they want them. So that's my dynamic still life. That workshop is the split primary palette. And then oil painting boot camp is three colors in white, artist's choice. Any three colors that you want to use, a red, a yellow, and a blue, plus white, and that kind of mixing. Both of those are limited palettes. Neither of those include tubes of secondary colors. So you are mixing your greens, oranges, and purples. And in both workshops, we do a ton of pre-mixing based on direct observation from life of still life. And when I teach portrait and figure painting, I use a three-color palette. Also, I teach with the Zorn palette, which is yellow ochre, cadmium red, and ivory black. There's a couple of variations on it, but that's how I teach it. Yellow ochre, cadmium red, and ivory black. So ivory black is the blue here in this scenario. You still have a red, yellow, and a blue, right? It's just a really desaturated blue. And Zorn palette is how I learned to paint with black. It was a revolution in my life when I stumbled upon it. I mean, I didn't discover Zorn. He's been dead for a hundred years. Uh, he's been famous for longer than that, but he taught me how to paint with black because when I was in art school, Kelly, we didn't paint with black. But, you know, Sargent painted with black. So 
why can't I? And I can now. And I learned how to use it by painting with the Zorn palette. And now it's on my expanded palette. Even when I'm painting with like a regular palette, I always want to have black. Black is often my second blue. If I'm painting split primary, I'll have ultramarine and then ivory black is my second blue. I treat it exactly the same as I would a blue. So I use it for what? I use it to darken other blue mixtures. I use it to mix violets. I use it to mix beautiful greens and to neutralize oranges. Is that because they're, I mean, you have to make black some way. Is that because manufacturers have like a blue tint in black or is it just because it works from a value standpoint? Hmm. Well, ivory black is actually a really, just a really dark, desaturated blue violet. That's what the pigment is. I don't really know why, but it's not mixed from other colors. It's its own pigment. Gamblin makes a black called chromatic black that is made from red, yellow, and blue. And if you mix the three primaries together, you will get to a very dark neutral color, which approaches black. That is true. You can mix your own black. And a lot of the artists who don't paint with black, and they are out there, they mix their own from a combination of dark transparent colors usually. And then the good thing about that is they get a custom black. They get the black that they like and they can control it. If they need a more transparent black, then they mix it that way. If they want something more opaque or you know what else, when they mix their own black from colors, that black belongs to that palette. It's in the family. It's not an outside pigment coming in. And that's what I really, really love about painting for my own self and also teaching with a really limited three-color primary palette. Every single mixture that I make is related. And so every color on your canvas is automatically harmonious. You cannot make mud with a three-color and white palette. I dare you to. So then when you're just mixing from your expanded palette, would you still use three of the primaries in each color you mix? Or are like if you want a really bright orange, would you still only use red and yellow? That is an awesome question. Yes. And I totally tell my students to watch out when they're mixing colors and try to make sure that they've got at least a little bit of all three primaries in every mixture except in rare cases, right? So a mixture where you've only got two of the primaries is going to be a strong and powerful weapon to be used, yes, but to be used sparingly. So in a painting, in a naturalistic painting, like when we're trying to have naturalistic, realistic paintings with colors that look like the world, almost all the colors that we see in the world are some version of a gray, even the ones that we think are very, very saturated. So when we're painting, if we want our colors to look naturalistic, they probably shouldn't be colors straight out of the tube. In a painting, when everything is saturated, nothing is saturated. It's like if you went to the orchestra and all the musicians were playing as loud as they could at the same time. So we need a range of actually much more subtle neutrals than we think we do to offset the passages where we are going to be more bold. So let's say you're painting a lemon, maybe, or an orange is a better example. The light side of the orange where the light's hitting it the strongest and you see that brilliant, beautiful orange. And I love painting oranges. I paint them all the time. And I'm telling you, I do not use tube orange. I own it. It's not on my palette. I'm mixing that orange. But the brightest, most saturated orange is just red and yellow, exactly like you said. But everything else around it to offset it is going to have at least a whisker of that complement, the blue. And so that's why they're called complementary colors. It's not, oh, that blue sweater looks great with your orange pants. It's not that kind of compliment. It comes from the Greek root word for complete, and so it means that a complementary pair contains all three primaries. Purple and yellow, you've got your red and your blue and the purple, and there's your yellow, and on and on like that. So you've got all three primaries in that complementary set, 
And so all those beautiful naturalistic colors that we're trying to mix, we need to keep in mind, like if I've only got two of the primaries in that mixture, I may need to consider bringing in a little bit of the third. Because it might just be a little bit, and a little bit might be different if you're using an ultramarine blue or cobalt blue or cerulean blue. Like that may be a very, very, very little bit. And God forbid you're using phthalo blue. And then just like shake the palette knife in the general direction of the phthalo <laughs> and just, run in the opposite direction. <laughs> you just think about phthalo blue, your whole painting is phthalo. <laughs> I keep yeah. wanting to add phthalo to my palette and then... I like open it up, get it all over my hands, and then just like <laughs> And then the cat comes in and jumps up and walks in it and tracks it all over the house. Try getting phthalo green out of a cat. That once happened to me. It's hard. That sounds terrible and amazing. So could you just talk us through how you premix? Let's say you're getting ready to do a still life of oranges, how you physically premix that palette. Okay, so I have an orange that I'm looking at, and it's under a strong light source, so it's got a cast shadow. It's got a real clear light side, shadow side, cast shadow, and highlight. Those are the four elements that I'm looking for when I'm trying to create three-dimensional form on a two-dimensional surface. The light side, the shadow side, the cast shadow, and the highlight. You got reflected light thrown in there for a bonus too. So I'm looking at those areas, and yes, I'm thinking, what color is that? But I know it's orange. The next level question for me is, what's the temperature? Temperature is really hard. It's hard to teach because it's a just a hard concept to learn. It's hard to get it from the head to the heart. It took me years. But that's what I'm asking myself. So it's not what color is it because I know it's orange. It's what kind of orange is it? Is it a greenish orange or is it a reddish orange? Right. So is it cooler or is it warmer? And then I go and start mixing. So it's really easy to start with the most saturated, lightest part. Like we just discussed, it's probably just going to be red and yellow. And then I'll start making like midtones, right? So I'll make a warm midtone. So that'll be red and yellow. And then I'll bring in maybe a little purple or a little alizarin crimson, or I'll go all the way to blue. Cause really like bringing in some alizarin crimson, that's like almost like adding a little blue cause it's a blue red. So maybe that makes me a warm midtone. And then maybe I, maybe I have a blue plate under my orange. And so there's some green happening. Like it's maybe it's casting some color around. This is the reason I'm a still life painter, frankly, because you go out in the landscape and what are you dealing with? Greens and blues and browns, right? You go paint a portrait, which I, I love it. I just, I'm addicted to portrait. But what are you painting? You're painting browns and tans and grays and pigs. I mean, they're lovely. But if I paint still life, I can create that world and I can put any colors in it that I want. I can have lime green and turquoise and pink and, you know, whatever my mood is that day, I have access to it. And I have a monstrously large collection of colored paper upstairs, and I'm actually, like, planning my next trip to Michael's, to the scrapbooking aisle at Michael's. It's, like, Disneyland for me. Every color of paper imaginable. And that's my palette. You know, color mixing begins in the still life when you're a still life painter. You're creating the color scheme of your painting when you're setting up your still life. And that's usually where my still lifes come from. Well, not usually, but sometimes they do. They just come from a place of, oh, I want this color combination is singing in my eye today. That's what I want. So then do you really walk through your setup and sort of think about, okay, again, still life with oranges, really look at the individual elements in it and really think like what color, what color temperature is that and then mix it and then do that for the entire painting 
No, no, but thanks for getting me back on track. It's not paint by numbers, so I am not pre-mixing with my palette knife for every single brush stroke. I'm trying to give myself some base notes to come back to that I'm going to expand on those. But when I do have to work back into an area, it's nice to have that starting point. So I've got a couple things mixed up for the dark oranges, and I've got a couple things mixed up for the mid-tones. My main goal when I'm painting is to put something down correctly the first time and leave it alone. But we all know it doesn't go that way, right? I mean, a lot of times in a painting, I, I could have had four paintings for as many times as I've repainted every single thing on the canvas. I don't like that, but you do it because that's what gives you the edges that you want and the brushwork that you like. So in order to work back and forth, it's nice for me to have those piles to go into, but I'm changing them. I'm tweaking them. I'm brush mixing. And oftentimes I'm mixing between the color families because like I said, if I've got an orange on a blue plate, that is going to be bouncing blue light into the orange and vice versa. So those colors are influencing each other. I call it color sharing. That's my very non-technical term for this phenomenon of how when you shine a strong light into a still life, it's going to bounce all those colors around on each other. So no, I'm not... If I tried to pre-mix for every single color spot that I could see, it would take me days for one thing. And then by the time I was finished with the mixing, I'd never be able to remember which pile was supposed to go where. It would be like this hellacious paint by numbers where all the numbers had been erased or something. You know, that's like the stuff of my nightmares. Pre-mixing for me is really just a base camp. It's a starting point. Okay. So you do like a base camp though for sort of the general elements you see. In your yes. still life. And while I'm spending that time mixing, I'm looking at the still life. I'm getting myself more familiar with it. You know, I've, maybe I've already done a sketch, a thumbnail sketch, or a value study. It's likely that I already have. So I've already been looking. But, you know, you have to get your eyes used to your subject. And you're going to see more and more the longer you look. So that time that I'm spending mixing, I'm looking at the still life. I'm noticing more things about it. I'm noticing little beautiful things about it that maybe I hadn't seen when I was setting it up. And I'm, I'm still kind of getting to the, the meat of what is turning me on about this subject. Is it a, like a really awesome highlight? Is it a cool shape in the negative space? Is it an overlapping of objects where I'm seeing a lost edge? So that time spent mixing and I'm looking at the still life, that's still like my discovery process for the piece. Do you see people trying to jump too quickly into the painting? And if so, what do they miss by doing that? I do see this. And this is why I say time spent mixing is time spent painting, because a lot of painters feel like if they're not touching the canvas with the brush and moving it, then they're not actually painting. But for me, I have a lot of process that goes on before the brush hits the canvas. And the more time I spend in the preparatory stages, the more I get to just relax and enjoy the party when it starts. <laughs> when the brush hits the canvas, I'm really prepared. So yes, I do sometimes encounter students who scrimp on the color mixing. And maybe those students are just intrinsically brush mixers. And I respect that. I want everyone to have their own artistic personality. All I'm offering is a tool, like try it my way. And if you like it, if you like any part of it, you take that with you. But ultimately, you're going to paint like you're going to paint. And you asked me a question earlier about um, process. If I thought it was beneficial for an artist to have a process that they go through exactly the same way each time they paint, I don't know. You know, for me, it's nice to have that to fall back on. You know, my process is something predictable that I can rely on, but I'm that kind of person. I don't like to fly by the seat of my pants. I kind of think that we, as painters who are learning to paint, and I, I count myself in that category absolutely, and I will for my whole life, I hope, we are out there gathering different tools 
and we should expose ourselves to lots of influences, including teachers. You know, I think that oil painting teachers, painting teachers in general, are all saying the same six or eight things. We're just saying it in our own unique way. So it's really important for students to find a teacher that says those six or eight things in a way that resonates with them. But throughout the course of your art education, which to these days is just like a la carte, it's so beautiful. We just can pick and choose the teachers we want to work with from this wide array, online, in person, all that stuff. Get the pieces that you like from each of those, bring it into your own practice. And the more you paint, I think each artist is naturally going to evolve something like a protocol that they're going to find themselves repeating. So even if it's not your goal to get there, you probably will get there. And I think uh, you'll find it comforting when you do, like I do. So you paint several things, and we're going to focus a little bit right now on the still life specifically, but you paint portraits. Actually, would you mainly say that you're a portrait and still life painter? Probably for the last three, four years, I've been primarily still life. Lately, the last few years, before that, I would say I was probably 60-40, 60% still life, 40% portrait figure. I love them both equally. I couldn't pick a favorite. You know, what's really awesome is I go and I, I teach portrait and I'm like, oh my God, I love this. I should do this every day. This is fantastic. And then I go and teach still life and I'm like, oh my God, I love this. I should do more of this. Why don't I do more of this? So I could not pick a favorite. They're like my children. So... It's great to have that, but I do have ideas around this too. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing to specialize. I know artists who say, well, I want to improve. How do I improve? And my honest opinion about that is that there's no substitute for drilling down and committing to one thing, whether it's a medium, like it's oils. I want to get better at oils. Okay. So I'm going to paint landscape and figure and portrait and still life and abstract, but I'm going to do it only in oils. Okay, good. So that's how you'll improve that. But if you're going to do printmaking and basket weaving and quilting and painting and drawing and mixed media, you may not improve in as targeted of a way. Like all the boats are going to rise, but they're going to rise real slow. And so I'm always recommending to people that they take maybe six months and really dedicate to one thing. And if you're already a painter and you want to kind of dip a toe into still life, then my advice would be take six months, just paint still life. And the great thing about still life and the reason that I primarily teach with it is because still life is a little laboratory where you can work on the fundamentals that then you can take to any other area of painting and they apply. What are the fundamentals that still life teach you? So the fundamentals that I'm talking about are values and color mixing, and then composition, the C word. But values, that's really, that's the most important values being the, uh, you know, how light or dark something is relative to white and black. And the idea that color has value. So let's say you go out in the landscape. When I go out in the landscape, I become very overwhelmed. Everything's green. I mean, I live in Oregon. So do you, you know, but everything is green. And if it's not green, it's blue. So fine. But my issue is what's the lightest thing that I can see here? And it's not always obvious, right? So learning how to squint and look around you and say, well, what's the lightest thing I can see right now? What's the darkest thing I can see right now? When I come to a still life, that's also one of the first questions I want to ask myself. How important is setting up a good still life? And how does someone, especially someone who's new to this, start setting up something that's going to set them up, not just for a good painting, but for learning about painting? Good question. So I think the most important reason to set up a quote unquote good still life 
a good still life is one that you're going to be interested in enough to stick with throughout the painting process, you know, because if you start painting something and it's bumming you out, you're not going to have fun. And if you don't have fun, you're not going to paint again the next day. And if you don't come back to the studio, you're not going to improve. So you need to paint not what you think you should paint, but what you want to paint. And don't shy away from it because you think it's too hard. I have consistently been surprised at how easy things turned out to be that I actually thought were going to be super hard. You know, I'd see somebody else painting it and I'd think, oh, damn, that looks hard. And onions, that's, a, that's one example, onions, very hard. But then it works the opposite way too. Like my Achilles heel for a decade was tomatoes, which I thought would be so easy. And they just slayed me every time the tomatoes would win. Not anymore. I have vanquished the tomato. So the importance of setting up a good still life, A, you got to be into it. But, you know, it's not critical, right? So we talked about how people just want to get to the canvas and paint. And if that's what you're interested in, you could paint anything. You could just throw some oranges on a plate, get a clip lamp. You know, I think clear lighting is pretty important when there's just a lot of ambient room light and you can't see any clear like form shadow, then it's, it's really, you're making your life difficult. Cause if you're trying to create the illusion of three-dimensional form on that canvas, give yourself something to do that with, you know, like create a lighting situation that you can work with where you can start to practice seeing those values. You got to have contrast. So it can be simple. You don't have to put a lot of pressure on the subject. Okay. I didn't when I started. I just threw things at the wall to see what stuck and I would see somebody else doing something that looked like fun. Then I would try it. Nowadays, it's getting more and more complicated. I will tell you, the setting up of the still life is the hardest part of the painting. Always. Is that because that's where you do your major composition and design thinking? So that's a good question because I don't really do my compositional thinking when I'm setting up the still life. I am thinking about Color, because, um, you know, because color mixing begins in the still life. So I am thinking about those combinations and the texture combinations. So one thing I think I'm looking for when I'm setting up a still life is repetition with variety. So maybe I'll have yellow. Maybe I'll have a lemon. Maybe I'll repeat that yellow somewhere else in the painting, or I will repeat the lemons. So let's say I'll have like a group of three lemons and then I'll have one lemon and then I'll have some cut up lemons. That's repetition with variety for me. And I also want overlap because that creates these big massed shapes. So instead of just lemon, 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 I've got three lemons in a clump. That's a big lumpy yellow shape. It's no longer a lemon, but it goes with the other lemons. I hope I'm making sense. It does get kind of abstract, but when I have overlap, right, then I've got opportunities for lost edges. And I really want that because that's like the key to loose realism, which is my thing, lost edges, where two areas of value come together that are the same or they're close enough and then you don't have to paint a line. So let's say I've got two lemons and one is in front of the other and the light halves of the lemons overlap. I can paint those into each other and I don't have to show you a line. Your brain solves that puzzle and that's what makes loose realism fun to look at. Your brain has something to do there. When you come to photorealistic painting, it's all spelled out for you. Yes, it's impressive. It's amazing to look at. The patience the artist must have shown alone impresses the hell out of me, you know, but there's not a lot for my brain to do when I come to those paintings. When you come to a painting where some things are implied and not everything is spelled out for you, you get to connect the dots and that makes these looser paintings fun to look at. I'm not sure I finished answering your question about still life setup, but you did ask me about composition and when does that happen? So I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to set up a good still life, meaning one that's clicking for you. And if you're struggling and your still life is not clicking, 
start taking things out. Take them out, take them out, because that's probably the answer. Or change the position of the light source, sometimes that's it. Or change your position relative to the still life, that's also a good troubleshooting tactic. You know, you need to be able to move around in your studio, move your easel around, even if it's just a few inches, it can make a big difference. But composition, so it is so much easier to set up a still life that clicks just on its own merit and then decide, what's the format? Is this a square painting? Is it a rectangular painting? Vertical, horizontal? And you do that with the viewfinder. After you set up a good still life that you like, then it's a lot easier to come to it and say, well, is this a square painting or a rectangular painting, rather than going in the studio and saying, I am going to set up the perfect square painting still life today, and it's all going to be awesome. I did this to myself recently. I had a frame I wanted to reuse for this show that's coming up. So I set out to create a painting of that size and shape. And it was harder, you know, it was harder to come at it from that starting point rather than, okay, I've got this good still life. Now what am I going to do with it? Well, so then where do you do the bulk of your composition and design planning? Not in my head. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) So artists are visual people. We need to see something in the physical world. I think some of us in order to make the call. So it starts with the viewfinder. I've got the still life set up. I'm looking at it through my viewfinder. I have a little, it's called the view catcher. View catcher by the color wheel is the brand. That's my favorite. And uh, it opens up fully to a square and then you slide the little door closed and it turns into a rectangle and it's got markings. So it can be eight by 10 or nine by 12 or 11 by 14. I've got a marking at the halfway point because I do a lot of paintings that are that domino ratio, the one to two you know, 10 by 20 canvas, something like that. And then I just look at it. And in my workshop, Painting the Dynamic Still Life, I ask students to do a thumbnail that's a square, same still life, a thumbnail that's a square and one that's a horizontal rectangle and one that's a vertical rectangle. And I don't always do that process in the physical world. I'll just be looking. But when I go to a a still life that I'm pretty sure I'm going to make a square painting out of and I just give myself that chance to look at it in a rectangle, sometimes I surprise myself and there's something there that I didn't see. But so after the looking part, then I do make physical sketches. And sometimes those are drawings, but a lot of times I'll skip that step. I can do it in my mind now. I couldn't always, you know, but now I can sort of, and that's the thing about practicing things like thumbnail sketches and and no-tan studies, which is a value study that's only black and white, two values. I can do that in my head now, but I didn't used to be able to. So if students practice that process, eventually they'll internalize it and they won't have to actually do it. And so a lot of the times what I do is just a value study in oil paint. I'll do a black and white oil painting. And if you go and look at my Instagram, you'll see a few examples of me doing a black and white oil sketch, you know, not more than 20, 30 minutes max on Arches oil paper is what I usually use for those studies. I love Arches oil paper. And then... If I don't love it, I might take a photo of it and put it into Procreate on my iPad. And then I can play with it in lots of ways. You know, I can play with cropping it or making it a little larger. I definitely do that. So if I'm working bigger than 12 by 12, if if I'm working 12 by 12 or larger, I'm always going to do some kind of a preparatory study, whether that's an oil sketch. It could just be a value study to totally in Procreate. I love digital painting. It's a great tool. And sometimes I use ballpoint pen, Sharpie, and white marker on tan paper. Those are really fun. Fun way to do a value study and sometimes just pencil. But I will do something because I got to look at it in the physical world. And so that's you figuring out the composition and the value structure that you're going to be painting. Right. So value structure is the bones of your composition. The point of a quote-unquote good composition is to suck the viewer in and keep them in your painting. 
hopefully long enough that they decide that they can't live without it and they take it home. So what sucks them in? It's the light, medium, and dark shapes of the painting. So I want someone to be able to walk into a gallery, see my piece from 30 feet away, and before they can even tell what it's a painting of, they want to go look at it. What causes that attraction? It's the arrangement of value shapes. So my value study oil sketches in black and white are pretty loose, and a no-tan, a just black and white value study, should be almost totally abstract. It's like a Rorschach test. You want to be having a visceral reaction to these shapes that you're creating, and that's going to hopefully make for a pleasing composition. I mean, you can at least feel the movement that you're creating there on the canvas. There are some rules. Rules are made to be broken, but it's good to know the rules because if you're going to break them, it's better to do it on purpose, right? There are some some kind of compositional tools that are good to know, like don't send a line moving directly out of a corner. Don't put something smack in the middle of the canvas surrounded by empty space. One of my favorite art books, the book that really taught me the fundamentals of composition is called The Simple Secret to Better Painting by Greg Albert. And in that book, he talks about the one rule of composition, which is no two intervals should be the same. And he means that across the board, like you should have an uneven distribution of values, like light, medium, and dark, you should have a dominant value in the painting. They shouldn't be equally spaced. And if you're going to paint like three lemons, it shouldn't be lemon, lemon, lemon with two inches in between each one and two inches in between, you know, the edges of the canvas. That's boring. It's boring for the viewer. The human brain loves asymmetry. So don't make everything so evenly spaced. And so if someone is painting something, like doing a no-tan study in black and white, but then let's say the painting is going to be three values, how does that translation work from a, from a no-tan black and white into a painting that's, again, let's just say three values of color? So when I do a value study with my workshops, we use five values, and that's still a really limited toolkit. And so with only two, that's the most extreme. You're being forced to make a choice. And what you're choosing about is the midtones. So we know what the darkest darks are. We know what the lightest lights are. We can locate those. But most of what we're dealing with falls into the midtones. And then it's up to us to decide whether we're going to send those into the black or into the white. And even with five values, you're still deciding, right? So with five values, you've got three is the midtone. You've got two on the light side and two on the dark side. But really, when you're painting in color, you can see a vast range. Really, when we're painting anything, we can see in nature so much more than we can actually do with the tools that we have. Paint has limitations, and a five-step value scale has a lot of limitations. So we're being forced to choose what we're going to do with the midtones. That's been really important for me. So like, let's say I was going outside to paint a landscape, which I did used to do. I did a bunch of that for a few years, back around 2014, 13, 14. So let's say one of my biggest problems when I would go out would be grass. Is that grass light or is it dark? Well, green is a mid-tone color generally. And is if the grass is in the sun or if it's in the shade, it was always hard for me to decide where I was going to send it. So if I could do a preliminary value study, then I could decide. Okay, I'm choosing to see this grass as being a dark mid-tone. It's working in my value study. So when I go to paint it in color, I'm going to make sure that color I mix for that grass is a dark mid-tone. And then my color painting, if I took a black and white photo of it, it would have that same value structure as my plan. You can learn more about Sarah Sedwick, including her classes at sarahsedwick.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. I really enjoyed it, Kelly. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 22 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it. Learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support.
All right, happy painting. <laughs>